Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Dogs are an important part of our lives. That means protecting them from parasites. Ask your vet about NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus chews provide one-and-done monthly protection against fleas, ticks, heartworm disease, roundworms, and hookworms. Plus, they're delicious and easy to give. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurologic disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. Ask about NexGuard Plus chews. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I don't know if I learned much physics at MIT, but I learned how to kind of look like a physicist and dress like a physicist and hang out with the physicists so much that I was just part of the furniture and, and, and they would forget I was there. And then you can start doing good reporting and, and you know catching people being themselves which is an important part of science, I think. That's Dennis Overby, the veteran science journalist with the New York Times, reflecting on his approach to making even the most complex scientific stories clear and vivid. To give you a recent example, how the wobble of a muon, that's right, the wobble of a muon, could overturn the model of the universe that physicists have had for over 50 years, and why many physicists couldn't be happier. This is so great to be talking with you because you're such a terrific communicator, a communicator of science mainly, but I bet it spills over into every other area. I didn't realize until I looked you up that you had you have an MIT physics degree. Do you think that's important for a science communicator or doesn't it matter? I didn't spend a lot of time in class at MIT and I I used to show my transcripts sometime when I gave talks, but it, it, it's, it's so embarrassing. Well, what was embarrassing about it? All the, all the C's and D's and <laughs> oh, I see. the classes I took over again. <laughs> you know, I think that's sometimes a sign of w- looking for a better, a, a better answer to your questions. So, so does, does the science degree help you? Well, it helps me in that people I went to school with now um, are famous senior scientists and, you know, uh, wow. tenured professors, and we can talk the same language. I don't know if I learned much physics at MIT, but I learned how to kind of look like a physicist and dress like a physicist and hang out with the physicists. And just because I've spent a lot of time being in the room with these people so much that I was just part of their furniture and, and, and they would forget I was there. And then you can start doing good reporting and, and, you know, catching people being themselves, which is an important part of science, I think. And I think so, too. And I, I'm so impressed with how in your writing, for instance, when you wrote the book about Einstein and love, it was the human who both loved physics and math and loved women as well. Right. That was the lure of that book, really, was when they discovered Einstein's love letters, and I suddenly 
realize I started to get a glimpse of who Einstein really was, because before that, I just knew him as this sort of woolly-haired guy wandering around Princeton without socks, you know? So that was, I mean, that was great. The only thing wrong with it, because everybody, of course, was important in his life, was dead. So I couldn't spend any time sitting around in the room with them like a piece of furniture. But you did this other thing, which is so interesting. You you went, I learned in the prologue to that book, you went to the neighborhoods where he lived, the coffee houses. You took hikes that he took, like that famous hike he took with Marie Curie. Did you get, what did you get out of that? I mean, Einstein was, he was always at the center of what was happening historically. And I mean, I wanted to actually, back when travel was a business, you know, I thought it would be really fun to do an Einstein tour, just take people around and mm-hmm. walk around Bern and Zurich and Berlin and, and Prague. I mean, that was great traveling because I hadn't been to those places before. And uh, and to be in a place like that with a sort of mission and not just as an ordinary tourist is, is a really fun thing to do. Did you get insight at all into Einstein's thinking or his feelings from walking the places he walked? I mean, a little bit, because I felt, I mean, when I was walking there, I was seeing the same things that he saw 100 mm-hmm. years ago, especially in places like Zurich and Bern. It hasn't changed a bit, so... You can walk down the same streets. He walked down, you would see the famous clock tower in Berlin, which was right up the street from where he lived and from where he uh, invented relativity. And it just impresses itself on you that uh, you're seeing the same things that he saw. And when I stood outside the the Polytechnic and, and looked out over this terrace across the city, and you see all these clock towers, and when they hit the hour... They all make a sound, and then because it takes sound different times to get to you, you're kind of experiencing this kind of relativity of time in some extent. You're getting these signals. That's so interesting. That might have been a, a thought that he had watching that same clock. Well, that's what I was, that was what I imagined. I mean, yeah. Well, it, it does jolt you a little bit with a sense that you can imagine them better. I did the same thing when I wrote a play about Marie Curie. I walked from where she taught to the the apartment building where she would go to meet her lover between classes. Uh-huh. And I wanted to see how out of breath she might be when she got there. <laughs> I don't know if it had any effect at all on my understanding of her or if I was able to use it in the play, but it it felt like I was digging a little deeper. Yeah, you're walking in her footsteps. and uh... Uh, Kind of literally, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, there was a line in that same prologue, I think, where you were talking about how if you had him alive now, you would have followed Einstein around, you would have sat with him quietly. You could have done it the way you do journalism now. And you said science journalism did not exist as an art form then. And I thought, I think that's the first time I heard it referred to as an art form. And it is. It can be anyway. (laughs) <laughs> right. not just tr- not just translating the arcane right. language that's that's my me being pretentious a little bit but uh, of course it's not just transcription i mean you have any sort of journalism is not just transcription it's gathering facts gathering quotes gathering material and then you know you reform it and report it back out there's always a process of uh, redaction and editing and and imagination i think 
because it's a human doing it. That's the thing. You, your appreciation of the idea and you're transmitting to us that same appreciation that science is done by humans, often with all their flaws and with their aspirations and the wrong turns they take. And that's the, every one of those elements is as important as the successes they have, it seems to me. Well, yeah, to me, that's the most important thing because there are these big philosophical debates about, well, what is science? And But I always think that science is something that people do, and it, so it's rooted in human beings. And scientists are a particular kind of human beings whose characters, their personalities really come alive when they're doing their science. I wonder if you know about that study that was done a few years ago, I think by the University of Pennsylvania, where they wanted to see how many emails were sent by people, by readers of the Times to other people about the articles they were reading. Yeah, the most emailed list. For a while, that was more important than being on the front page for a lot of people. Well, the thing about it that I remember that so strikingly is that it wasn't articles about how to make your health better or how much how to lose weight, things that are ordinarily clickbait. It was articles about that inspired awe. That sounds like it puts you at the top of the list. If you're a good journalist, you have to ignore that. You you can't if you start playing to the audience, then forget it. I mean your it's your job uh, is I to see what you mean. Yeah. Tell yeah. the news and send read responses, it's unpredictable. It sounds like this last article you wrote about a new turn that might be taking place is an example of what we're talking about here. It had to do with the muon. Right. See, that's a that got an amazing response. I mean, that's um, it's a very technical story, really. I mean, nobody knows what a muon is. Well, I'm one of them. So, so, so launch into it. Tell well, me what a muon. So, is. <laughs> right. So, a muon is. I mean, it's one of the so-called 17 fundamental particles that physicists know that make up the universe. It's sort of like an electron, but it's heavier. But what role it plays in the grand pattern of creation is a complete mystery. I mean, it was when it was discovered, uh, Isidore Rabi, who was a famous physicist at Columbia, said, who ordered that? This was what year was way back, wasn't it? Um, yeah, that's the year I was born. That's a long time. Right, and it was, um, well, it was discovered in California, but I think back then the center, center of physics in the world was New York City, and all the physics was done over, uh, over Chinese lunches. And so who, or, who ordered that kind of fit into the, with it? The... Well, in all that time, they haven't found out what role it plays? No, I mean, we know what electrons do, right? Electrons and protons make atoms and and it's you know all of chemistry is basically just electrons being shuffled around all our gadgets run on electricity which is electrons shuffling around i mean muons are like electrons but they're heavier and they're they have a they're associated with a another kind of particle called neutrino nobody really knows what neutrinos are for either. It turns out there are three kinds of neutrinos, and there are three kinds of electrons. There's electron, there's the muon, and then later on they found an even heavier version of electron called the tau. And people will fit all these 
fundamental particles into a kind of a pattern. They call this the standard model. And the standard model sort of fits all the experiments that basically have ever been performed on Earth in laboratories like CERN or Fermilab, some of them to incredibly incredible precision. And the standard model is, I think, almost 50 years old now. And most of the discoveries in physics in the last half century have been like confirming predictions of the standard model. And it's great. The standard model does a lot of things. And you know, most of, of modern technology runs on quantum mechanics and the standard model. However, the standard model doesn't explain a lot of really deep things about the universe, like why there's matter in the universe or... Uh, what the dark matter is that there's ordinary matter and the universe is outweighed by something called dark matter about five or six to one. And we know dark matter is not made of atoms, but nobody knows what it is, but it kind of helps determine the destiny of the universe. It sounds like the experiment you were reporting on, which was an experiment involving the, the muon, it was threatening to overturn the standard model. That's right. That's what all the excitement was about, because physicists have been dying to break the standard model, because no one wants to overturn modern physics more than modern physicists. Because they, The reason you become a scientist in the first place is to find out something new, to have that moment when you know that you know something that nobody else ever knew before. That's the big prize. And for 50 years, they've been pretty much denied that. Mm -hmm. So they're dying for something, some new, some loose thread that they can pull that would possibly unravel what we think we know about nature. And so, uh, you know, there was a big hullabaloo, that's almost 10 years ago, about when they discovered the Higgs boson, which was sort of prophesied, predicted. It's part of the standard model, that it, and it's required to explain why other particles have mass. Mm -hmm. And it, it cost billions of dollars in 50 years to finally find this thing. And it was on the front page of every newspaper in the world. It was a huge, big deal. A lot of the physicists involved in this search were like, they were really hoping it wouldn't be found. They were really rooting for it to not be there so that they would have to be able to go back to the drawing boards and find find a new theory. So, so this muon comes along and... Uh, they do this experiment at Brookhaven where they they send it around this uh, electromagnetic racetrack, really, 50-foot-wide electromagnet, and they can calculate how much this thing should wobble according to the standard model. And they can do this, they can measure this wobble to like, uh, I forget, it's like seven or eight decimal places. And in the seventh or eighth decimal place, it this wobble disagrees with the calculations of the standard model but it's not enough it's not convincing enough so they they took this magnet and they they shipped it all the way to chicago to fermilab 3000 mile trip on a barge basically all the way down the east coast and around florida up the and Mississippi i saw a picture River. of it it's a huge thing isn't it yeah it's like a flying saucer and it um and they really interestingly this. along the way along the route they had a park to rest for a while, because they're only traveling 10 miles an hour on the highway, and they had to park overnight to rest in a parking lot 
for Costco, I think. Yeah. And there were thousands of people who came to look at this thing and learn, and ask questions about what it was and what was the experiment. How interesting it was that that attracted the curiosity of ordinary people. People love this. They don't people are really interested in this. They just don't know that they're interested in it until it's presented to them the right way because it just sounds like a something really technical that they're not going to understand and it's full of weird words like muons and uh, worse. <laughs> worse. <laughs> this big machine finally gets to Chicago, and what do they do with it? They send a new beam of muons through it. Um, better muons, because, you know, Fermilab, they produce the best muons you can produce. You know, they're... I get most of mine from Fermilab. Yeah, I, <laughs> I have a subscription, but... <laughs> um, <laughs> And they measured, and this discrepancy still existed. So now in physics, there are always discrepancies between experiment and prediction. And generally, you have to do the experiment many, many times. And usually, if you do them enough times, the discrepancies go away. There's always just the chance that it's a fluke. Well, this time, the discrepancy didn't go away. So the chances that it's a fluke are much less than they were 20 years ago when they first did it at Brookhaven. So they're pretty excited because they've just started this experiment at Fermilab and they're going to be doing it for the next several years. They're going to wind up with 16 or 17 times as much data as they have reported so far. And what difference will it make? So the difference it will make is that they will, this will be the first time that they've actually disproved a prediction of the standard model. So it means the uh. standard model... There's something. There, There's the little thread. And what that thread consists of, you have to leave to the theorist's imagination. This is the really mystical part of this. See, this is, to me, this is what the beautiful part of this kind of experiment is. So in quantum mechanics, which is the actually the real theory, the real basic theory of the universe, this paradoxical body of principles and discoveries that governs the subatomic world. It actually governs the whole world, but we only see it manifested in subatomic particles. There's a something called the uncertainty principle, which some people have heard of, but, and it drove Einstein nuts. Because the uncertainty principle said that you can, you can know where a particle is, or you can know how fast it is going, but you can't know both. And the better you know one, the less you know the other one. And until you've measured where this particle is, or how fast it's going, it could be anywhere. It could be in your slipper, in the closet. <laughs> it could be in my eye. And this is literally true. I mean, this has been verified over and over again, that this is, a, this is just a fundamental fact of reality. One form of the uncertainty principle, one implication of it is that you can't ever know that a little piece of space is empty. Space is actually is foaming with these things called virtual particles. Popping into existence. Popping, popping in and out of existence, out yes. Hardest thing for me to swallow when I first heard it, because I remember the moment I'm on the phone with Graham Chedd, who, who's producing this podcast now, and, he, and, and I said, no, wait, wait. Nothing is nothing. Space is empty. Empty is empty. What do you mean there's something in there? And that's the first time I heard it. And every time I heard it after that, I, I thought, what, an, what a remarkable notion. How does anybody know? And what, how do you handle that? Things popping in and out of existence out of apparently nothing. Yeah, so it sounds crazy. I mean, it's 
was a mathematical prediction. I, um, and it was verified long ago that these particles popping in and out of existence would have a slight effect on things you could measure. So, so here's a muon, and as uh, this guy, what's, what was his name, Jolly, said, the muon is never alone. There's no such thing as a lonely particle in the universe. It's surrounded by these virtual particles. And the thing is that anything that is permitted to exist by the laws of physics, and we don't know the laws of physics, can appear and affect this muon. Anything. A dragon can appear and affect this muon. Um, so all kinds of things that we don't even know exist yet can appear in this empty space and they will affect the muon. So, so the muon is, is wobbling and it's not wobbling according to the predictions because it's being affected by something that the predictions haven't taken into account, which is all uh, of these I other see. particles that we don't know yet that might exist. So it's opening a door to new mysteries. Exactly. And, and how wide that big that door is and where it goes, nobody knows. I mean, if history is any guide, nobody will know for a long time. Because once you start following one of these threads, you don't know where it's going to lead. When we come back from our break, Dennis Overby confesses that even he doesn't really care about the muon. He cares more for what it represents the human drive to understand the world we live in. Clear and Vivid can be downloaded for free because it's supported by our sponsors and by, as they say, people like you. But there are no people like you. You're you. We want to make sure you know about patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's where, if you love hearing from the extraordinary guests we have on our shows, you can become a patron and get early access to special videos. And at the highest tier, you can join me in our monthly get-together online. I think you'll find out that the listeners to our podcast are often as much fun to hear from as our guests. We're grateful to you all. Thank you. And don't forget to check out patreon.com slash clearandvivid. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a modern design that lets you go further and do more. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, complemented by an interior built with integrity. The Defender capability is legendary. Whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions, its durability has been tested to the extreme. Powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system keep you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. And robust cargo capacity means more room for your gear. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Dogs are an important part of our lives. That means protecting them from parasites. Ask your vet about NextGuard Plus. 
Afoxiloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NextGuard Plus Chews provide one-and-done monthly protection against fleas, ticks, heartworm disease, roundworms, and hookworms. Plus, they're delicious and easy to give. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurologic disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. Ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Dennis Overby. So let me ask you a, a question that's prompted by our talking about the mystery you've just been explaining. Why do you suppose it should matter to ordinary folks who have a mortgage, have kids to bring up, have things in the garden that need to be weeded? Why should it matter what the heck the muon does when it wobbles? Yeah, I don't think they care about the muon. I mean, I don't care about the muon either. What I care about, what people <laughs> care about is is that we have this legacy as humans to understand who we are and where we came from and where we're going. I mean, this and so this is part of that trying to answer that question. We would like to know what the world is. Because as a friend of mine once said, he said when a child asks what is the world, we have nothing to tell her because we don't have a we don't have a theory of the world we don't have a complete theory of what the world is made of and we have this standard model that you know tells us a lot about how to make electric cars maybe uh, maybe a lot about biology although we're still learning a lot about biology i feel like we had a crash course in biology and virology in the last year but we don't, I mean, we don't know him. I mean, and I think it's a part of being human to wonder about these things. I mean, every kid asks these questions. Then you get too busy. One of the problems is that the people who do know a lot about a little part of the universe have such a vocabulary to express it, like what we've been talking about in terms of muons and the wobble they have. It's it really requires somebody like you who can invent metaphors and analogies to help us know what they're talking about. I mean, I, 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 we, we did a show on Scientific American Frontiers about uh, dark matter and uh, other astrophysics questions. And everywhere we went to interview scientists on several continents, I would ask them, can you help me picture the curvature of space-time. What it, I can't picture it. And I know that Einstein had a favorite analogy. If you had a rubber sheet stretched tight and you put a bowling ball in the middle of it and tried to roll a golf ball across it, it would dip where the dip toward the bowling ball where it depressed the rubber sheet. But that never answered the question for me because it reduced it to two dimensions and gravity occurs in every direction around the earth and not only that not only that he was using gravity to explain gravity the bowling ball depresses the sheet because of what we call gravity so <laughs> it's a little yeah it is a nice i mean i actually use the sagging mattress a lot but um, i love that you helped me understand yeah. it by calling it a sagging mattress because but of I course could, that's just you know that has the same flaw that you just well, what I, what I did now, here's what I did with the sagging mattress. I put another mattress on top of it, and the bowling ball would depress 
the top mattress as much as it had depressed the bottom mattress. And therefore, I could picture something that moved, that could possibly move through the mattresses as no matter what direction it came in from, it would veer toward, toward the bowling ball because the mattresses had been curved. So I got a little closer with your analogy, and I really was grateful to you. What all these things, they're very visual, but what they all leave out is this idea that, of course, the time is also curved. Yeah, well, you, the, the train the train left the station with me on Yeah, that. and I can't explain that, and I, it's kind of gets left out somehow. But it, I, I asked scientists on that, on that trip, I asked scientists, how do I visualize this? I can't, I can't visualize it. They said, what makes you think out of 7 billion people, you're going to be the one who can? I thought, right, no, <laughs> you're right. I've heard a lot of, I mean, scientists say, look, you know, it's easier to do the math on the paper than to actually visualize it, you know, visualize anything in four dimensions. So it makes a lot of us who are used to making up our mind about things based on our experience question whether we should make up our minds about how the universe works based on somebody's arithmetic. I know it's not arithmetic. I'm, 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 I'm being snarky. Yeah, no. Well, our minds evolved to make use of a certain universe, and they're very good at doing that, how to avoid stepping on snakes and how to throw a rock and a lion or something like that. You know, it raises, we're running out of time, but it raises a final question for me is, you satisfy in your writing a lot of my curiosity. Do you have a drive to ignite the curiosity of the people you write for? If they're not that curious, do you think it's possible to help them get more curious? I think they're all curious. They just don't know they're curious. Oh, tell about that. And they're, and they're easily turned off by by technicalities. or And there's a lot they don't have to know. Okay, you don't necessarily have to know how you know time is affected by space-time curvature to appreciate that there are things like black holes, that the, that the universe evolves. And it, you don't have to know everything. You don't have to know every detail to kind of appreciate the, the overall grandeur of the tapestry. Or what, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, I go to a symphony, and I'm not that particularly musically literate. I mean, I can enjoy it, but I don't have to know that every note was played perfectly or that every instrumentalist was uh, flawless. Or what key it's in. It, I, I, I know what you mean, because when I go to a symphony and they always tell me not only the title in the program, but what key it's written in. And sometimes the program notes say, this key was chosen because this key has these qualities. And I ask my musician friends, does, do different keys have different qualities to you? And, and most of them say yes. And I don't hear it. But I can still enjoy the music anyway. I think it, it's a, it confirms your analogy. Right. I've never quite understood the whole business with keys. And I had a friend, uh, a woman who was like a brilliant guitarist, and she tried to teach me guitar. But I would never got like, what, what, why, why does it care matter what key we're in? I'm like, why is that so important? So that's something I'm not going to understand. But you can still enjoy the music. Absolutely. Well, I've enjoyed our talk so much, and I, I look forward to when we can get together over a beer and talk more about this stuff. Because you, oh, that would be that would be wonderful. You, I mean, you're just doing great work. I have to say, I'm I'm very impressed and uh, and uh, grateful for what you're 
you're doing. Well, with I us. appreciate that you because you're you're a master at this. So I I really appreciate you saying that. Before we go, we ha- we usually end the show with seven quick questions that are r- roughly about communication, and and the, the the answers can be brief. What do you wish you really understood about science or about about anything? <sighs> I really wish I understood myself, but well, that's good. What Marsalis said, women. <laughs> yeah, but you get in trouble for saying that. I mean, Hawking got in trouble for saying that. You know. <laughs> How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? That's well. If their facts really are wrong, they just say, "Well, I don't think that's right." If I know better facts, I'll say them. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Am I happy? They asked you if you were happy. Yeah, no, I'm more, yeah. Well, that is a strange question. To me, it's a strange question because everybody, anybody who knows me, though I'm never happy, so, but, but it kind of makes me, it makes me laugh, so. <laughs> if you're not happy, it's good to know there's a way to get you to laugh. <laughs> How do you stop a compulsive talker? Boy, I wish I knew. Um, leave the room, change the subject, ask another question. Okay, let's say you're sitting next to, this is the next question. Let's say you're sitting next to someone at a dinner table when that becomes more popular again. And you're sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you strike up a genuine conversation with that person? A genuine conversation, as opposed to a conversation? I mean, I ask them, I'll ask them who they are and what's, what's their connection with whatever we're at. Because so basically, what are you doing here? Yeah, well, you know, what's your connection? Why, you know, <laughs> right. these days, I mean, the only group activities I participate in, I mean, for the last year, the Saturday morning softball games. And so, so I'll ask somebody how they got in the game. What's uh, um, right, right. Because uh, yeah. it's always people who know each other in some strange way. Um, Next to last, what gives you confidence? I what, love the look that comes what, over people's face when you I think ask them I'm that question. confident. It's so, <laughs> well, when, when you are confident, what, what makes it happen? I guess when I think I know what I'm doing. Okay, last question. What book changed your life? Ah, what book changed my life? Um, one book that had a big influence on me, and um, it was a book called The Parable of the Beast by a guy named John Blybtrue, who I think was like living in a cave in Santa Monica or something like that, or Santa Cruz. And it was about science, and it was about any discussed a lot of research about the uh, pineal gland and a few other things. And it was, it was sort of a mixture of science and, and uh, psychology and a bit of mysticism. Anyway, I think it was the first book that I kind of read that combined popular science with sort of kind of modern thought and it sort of, and it inspired me. That and uh, Steps Toward an Ecology of Mind by Gregory Bateson um, and uh, Timothy Ferris's book, The Red Limit. Those kind of influenced me at a time when I was sort of shifting careers and actually wasn't doing anything and made me feel more encouraged towards uh, towards writing, which I'd always wanted to do. Um, 
Well, I'm glad you read that stuff because it it inspired you to enter into this career, which has benefited all of us so much. I, I, I love I lo- every time I see your name at the head of an article, I know I'm in for a really important treat. Well, you're being very kind, but I, it's I'll take it. Um, I'm glad to be here. <laughs> glad to know you and uh, hope you keep up the good work. Same yeah. to you. Thank you so much. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Dennis Overby has been explaining the mysteries of the universe for over 30 years in the pages of the New York Times. His book on Albert Einstein is called Einstein in Love, a Scientific Romance. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Erica Huang, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. This is the last episode of Season 13 of Clear and Vivid, but Season 14 is just around the corner. Check in next week when Graham and I share some moments from our future episodes, including this one from the season's first guest, Kevin Bacon. He of the six degrees of Kevin Bacon, Kevin Bacon. The other thing about the six degrees thing is I've I've always thought to myself, you just need to take me out of it. When you take me out of it, it the concept of it is, is really a kind of important and beautiful concept. And that is that we are all connected and we see this now so much during this pandemic, right? Um, the what what you go out and do in your life affects other people, and that's the that's the connections. Kevin Bacon and making connections in just two weeks on the new season of Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NextGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NextGuard Plus chews provide one-and-done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, Plus, it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored, soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurologic disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive.